The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. Are you feeling overwhelmed with data paralysis? Are you flooded with analytics, but you lack context and meaning? Is your job of making decisions getting even more difficult, even though you have more tools at your disposal? If so, then you have to listen to the answers provided to us today by Angeli Mullins. Angeli, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joel. Nice to be here. So this is a big problem. Uh, you know, we're data overload and all the other stuff, these, uh, you know, large uh, companies that we deal with, uh, even even the giant Fortune 500s, which I often talk to. And uh, these people are experts at, at all this kind of very complicated stuff. But I, I sort of wonder, are they kind of missing something? You know, is all this data really telling the true story? So what, what's the truth? Are they really getting the bare facts or is there something missing? There really is, Joel. And, you know, over the past 10 years, we started, especially in the marketing space, is a great example. Um, you know, it was all about data-driven marketing and making data-driven decisions. And then, of course, that spilled over into other areas of the organization as it should. But the problem, though, is as we've evolved, we've gotten to this stage, just like you talked about, of data paralysis. So many data points, so much facts and information that what happens is it actually causes paralysis in an organization for making decisions. And moreover, what it does is we're missing that core piece of contextual information. What does that data actually mean? What are the reasons behind it? And so this is really the trend and the challenge that, that we're facing now. You know, I've always been somewhat suspicious of data, the concept of data. I, I sort of think, uh, you know, people don't love data. They love answers and, <laughs> and data sort of supports answers. And I find a lot of times there's confirmation bias and, you know, the, the survey gives you exactly what you expected because you sort of survey for that thing. How do you make sure that you're not falling trap into those kind of problems? Because that just seems it just seems like what everybody does and they end up back at square one. Yeah, you know, you're right. And really what data is supposed to do is it's supposed to fundamentally support a hypothesis. And the idea is you have a hypothesis in about in a business perspective, how you would go to market, what strategy to use, which customers to target, how you're acquiring customers. And you're supposed to be proving that or negating that based off of the data. 
So that's how it's supposed to go. All right. So first, of, first, so first of all, the data we're talking about is marketing data because there's data in every every category. So just yes, for marketing clarity, data. marketing yes. data. Okay. And and you just said that the goal is to support the hypothesis. I mean, is I'm not a scientist, but isn't the goal to find out what is accurate and then bend the hypothesis around it or, you know, kind of change based on what you find out? Yes and no. The idea, I mean, especially in the marketing world is it's constantly evolving, constantly changing. So just like in the news media, how we've evolved to this 24-hour news cycle, it's the same thing in the marketing world. You have different audiences, different criteria, niche audiences, for example. And the whole idea of great marketing is to, number one, uncover what that is, create different ways to figure out how to approach your clients, your audiences, and also figure out what is it that you do not know, or what is it that you've overlooked, or what are specific arenas or areas that you can uncover that may be the key to unlocking a new market, the key to unlocking new business, which of course results in revenue. But it all starts with the hypothesis. So what are, what are, um, what are some surprises that companies get? Like when they're doing this, you know, I mean, do, do they do they just confirm what they already know, or do they get a real big surprise that causes them to take a hard left turn in their in their decisions? I mean, this is a huge one because a lot of companies will sit in a room and try to confirm what they already know or pre existing strategy. A lot of the reasons that companies are using brand tracking nowadays is to uncover what they do not know. And so it's that area of what you do not know that sometimes will pivot your entire strategy, your entire audience, who you're going towards that can actually make make or break the difference for success or make and break the difference for growth. Okay, so what is what is brand tracking? I mean, it's, I'm not familiar. It's kind of a uh, a new age term, I guess. Yeah, brand tracking. Um, it is a newer idea, but really, what it is is it's one of the last uncovered arenas of the marketing field. So in marketing, you have channel marketing. Let's say you're doing digital marketing. You have social, uh, you know, share of voice, um, you know, social listening. But it's the idea of how consumers feel and think about your brand. So if I asked you something like Apple, how do you feel and think? Or I asked you something like Shell Oil, how do you feel and think? It's this contextual information, and it's also about uncovering niche audiences. And we also track brand awareness, and we do that over time. Okay, so uh, how you're, that, this is what your firm does. So you're an expert in this sort of thing. Okay, so how, how exactly does it happen? Is it a, is it a technology thing that, that you're doing, or is it like a survey thing? Like, what is it you guys are doing? It is. Um, what we've done is, you know, we're starting to really move forward the space of what we call market research and consumer insights. It's a survey platform and a survey methodology. Now, if you roll back many years ago, the old way of doing it, basically, if you think of old school focus groups where people are sitting around, that was the first stage of it. Then it moved into the next stage of quota sampling. That's the traditional way that most consumer insights firms work now. The way that we're starting to do it at Latona, um, we have a particular algorithm that we use, and we also have surveys which show up on mobile devices. So let's say you needed to get an audience in a particular country, and they had a very specific type of demographic or segmentation. Based on our mobile device survey platforms, we can locate 
those individuals. And then what our machine learning does is it projects that outcome and it also smooths over the fluctuation of that data. What it means is we can get data faster. We can make sure that it's more accurate. And we can also make sure that it's more precise. So think about your mobile device. If you're ever shopping or you have a game and you have a survey that comes up, it has a particular type of personalization on it. So we have an idea of who you are, your demographic, your segmentation, and you're answering these particular questions. That's a lot more precise um, than the way that data is usually collected. Um, you know, <sighs> I guess it just sort of comes from me kind of just being a little suspicious about surveys and things, but do people really act the way that they answer the questions in a survey? I mean, my, in my experience is that if you gave somebody a survey two hours apart or two days apart, they wouldn't answer the questions the same way. I, I mean, I, I just wonder about that. You know, it's the way that we ask a survey. So for example, we try to make it very short and very contextual. So if I put something um, up in front of you and say, do you know this brand? Yes or no. That, that answer is probably going to remain the same today as it will remain two days from now. Would you prefer or consider this brand? It might change a little bit depending on the context, but more or less, we're finding that those answers are the same. So it's all, it's all about how the survey is set up and it's about the personalization and the context and once we're asking the questions. Yeah. And and, and so what, tell us again about the part that you target people in a certain way. You're able to define niches. How, how exactly does that work? Or, or what, what can you tell us? Sure. So it has to do with some of the panel providers that we have in personalization. So again, it's almost think of it in this way. Um, I'm sure you've been on your mobile device and let's say you're typing something into a social platform and then you get retargeted and you're thinking to yourself, how did I get that ad? I was just talking about that, or I was just typing that in. So that's that personalization function that's running in the background. So I've experienced that, for example, if I'm shopping for a purse or a shoe, and all of a sudden it's popping up everywhere. So it's the basis of personalization. So we're using that to be able to target different types of consumers. It's also cookies, which there's some news um, going on in the market um, about what will be happening to cookies, um, but that's a different, different discussion. Um, but these are all different ways that we can know more about you to make sure that we're targeting um, the right type of individual to answer the survey. So, well, so first of all, um... It's it. You're targeting people, not companies. So you're subject to GDPR and all the privacy rules. So uh, that's very complicated when you start dealing with people. Companies, it's a whole different story. But so tell us about how do you kind of deal with those GDPR rules? Are you kind of sidestepping them? Or is there a way to go right straight through them and, and be okay? I mean, how does that happen? I mean, these users have to opt in. Of course, these users have to opt in to say that they want to, number one, be tracked, and then number two, to accept and to complete the survey. So why, did, why does somebody want to be tracked? And what, what, you know, what, what's the incentive? For, could you just give us some context so we kind of understand it? Because uh, you know, not everybody here is a marketing person that listens to this. How, what makes somebody say, you know, I, I would love to have a big company follow me around on the internet? You know, it really depends on the context of what they're doing. So some people, for example, really want to have a personalized shopping experience or a personalized browsing experience. Um, I've seen certain individuals where they want forms pre-filled in based off of things that they've already typed in. It really just depends. There are other consumers who are on the opposite side. 
And they said, I don't want you to know anything about me. And that's okay. Those individuals can opt out. But what we're finding is smoother experiences, whether it's filling out a form, shopping online, um, you know, what you're looking for, the results that are showing up. This is the basis. Um, so you can find it in Google on certain results. So let's say you wake up in the morning, you're always looking for shopping results or sports results or news financial results. You find that these things tend to always go at the top of your feed because that's the personalization engine taking place. Yeah. Personally, I like it. I, I like when they kind of know that I'm uh, looking for this sort of thing or, you know, I it just there are certain examples of it. I can't think of right the second, but there just are certain examples where they just kind of get it. And, and I kind of like that. But, uh, you know, for people who are crazy on the other side that say, I don't want anybody tracking me, that ship has sailed. It's long gone. Uh, I, I think whether you opt in or not, you know, everybody knows everything about you. If you go to Costco, uh, they know when you buy string beans and, and you know, cause, and then they, they aggregate all that giant stuff into, into big data. It, it's the world has gotten very complicated. So one of the things in the industry, a lot of people say that they want their privacy when it comes to data. But then a lot of people, whether you're shopping online or in a physical store, they also say, well, I want my shopping experience to be personal. And I want, you know, that company or that service to know everything about me in Decatur. You, you you can't necessarily have it both ways. There has to be some common ground. Well, I wonder. I wonder if the problem is that they trust the company and then the company sells their data. So yeah, that's kind of where I think the problem is. Is that there's certain brands that are really trustable, and and we can kind of talk because that's kind of what your company gets involved with is why do they trust some brands a lot. But then maybe the violation is that that these companies contribute those giant databases maybe anonymously maybe not anonymously to some big data pool like Facebook or other aggregators. So how do you guys manage that? Well, what we do is a little bit different. So we're not a shopping platform. We don't track users' data to you know, sell them a particular product. What we do is companies are coming to us saying, we want to understand our consumers better. Can you help us with that? We go out to our survey uh, platform and our panel partners, and these particular consumers on their mobile devices, they're opting into the survey. They know they're filling out that survey and they're willingly doing that. So it's a little bit different. So you're sort of doing uh, focus groups on a, on a grand scale across the internet in a certain way on a contract basis for companies. Is that kind of what it is? Correct. With machine learning behind it um, and all of that, but yes, correct. So what? tell us about the machine learning part. Do does the questions change as the as the computer learns more and more about the process or about the pool of consumers? I mean, is is the is the machine getting smarter and smarter as as we go? Um, what it does is it actually smooths out the data and helps you to look at data over over time. So consumers will fill out the data on their mobile devices, and then what happens is we get all of that data in a huge pool. We have outliers, let's say individuals who we know it's not personalized. We want to make sure that, um, you know, robots online, it's not filling out any false information. And then we want to make sure that that information is stabilized over time because the key to brand tracking is not just doing it once. So think if you're a marketing leader, or even if you're a CEO of a company, I want to know what people think of my brand now. And then say you had a huge campaign, you launched in a market. I want to know how that's changed the next quarter and the next quarter. So it's all about that process over time. So that's where that machine learning starts to come in in that processing. 
Does this uh, apply to consumer products only, or are there lots of other? Because I can think of other things. For example, I've been in the in the money business for most of my career: venture capital, hedge funds, and those. And you know, guys are always raising money for new ideas and startups. Would this apply at all to raising capital and finding out what investors' appetite is for deals? I mean, any any anything like that ever cross your plate? Theoretically, it could, but what we focus on at Latana is consumer-driven companies. And the reason for that is because there's a lot more individuals out there as a pool of respondents that will say, okay, what do you think about Apple or what do you think about you know this new fast-moving tech company? There's going to be a lot of consumers that are going to either have awareness of that and be able to answer those questions. When you look at the pool for investors, for example, that pool, although large, might not be large enough on a population scale. But you but you guys also have targeting tools where you could find people who are kind of hiding in cracks and crevices, right? I mean, I mean that's we what it sounds could. like. We could, but again, it's all about focusing on something that we can scale at. And so that's the crust of our business. That's why we're really focusing on these consumer companies because we can scale at that. It's not to say that we can't do that in future, but as any business leader will tell you, it's all about you know focusing on the core. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Good. So, um, can you give us any uh, any kind of a, a an example of a brand? And you don't have to be specific because I know you have some confidentiality and you can't share all your ideas and everything. But can you tell us about a company that? Uh, that, you know, what they learned you know, for or if maybe what they asked, if they learned was something maybe different than what they asked, you know, what they expected and then what they did differently as a result. Can you give us any kind of an example like that? Um, I can start with some high level examples. So, for example, a couple of um, key clients of ours we work with Headspace in the United States, a very well known, um, you know, health and wellness app, uh, Duolingo, a language learning app. Um, what a lot of these companies are coming to us for, number one, is to understand their brand awareness. And then also as they expand to different markets, how that brand awareness is either uh, increasing, diminishing? Is there any little piece of insight as far as their audience segmentation? So for example, um, we ran a study for Duolingo in China that was quite interesting in some of the results that they received. Um, Headspace has worked with us to expand to multiple different markets. Um, and the idea is, is the model that they're using for their strategy, when, wherever they start their business, is it the same for other markets as they continue to expand? And so without going into a lot of detail, this is a lot, a lot of the ways that companies are using us. Can, can you share any of the things that they, any of the insights they might've might have gained from, from doing this? One of our companies, N26 as an example, a neobank um, that's headquartered in Berlin, um, they were using us for awareness and they actually uncovered a, a nice audience of students. And this was really interesting and kind of capturing students. And then how do you convert students to like long-term banking clients? And especially in the neo-banking era, um, consumers, they don't necessarily want to go into a physical banking branch. And so how do you capture them and move forward? But that was a really interesting insight. Sometimes, you know, the, this segment, they might think it would be the generation of 25 to 35 or even 45, et cetera. But really capturing that student audience was was really pivotal for them. that. That is pretty fascinating because young people are not uh, they're not really bullish on banks. 
And, and they're really, they don't really see how banks are going to help them in the future. And that's especially as we move toward a virtual currency. Uh, banks are, are, should be terrified about their prospects because things are really changing fast. So uh, pretty interesting to find out that there's a pool of people that uh, would like to buy some of their services. I mean, it, it, that's interesting. That, that is interesting to me. What about um, uh, any others and anything else that you could think of that would be uh, an insight that somebody gained that was a surprise? I would say it's not so much uh, always about the surprising pieces. It's about the terms that people are using. So we have awareness, how many people, you know, or percentage of population is aware of you. But then we also have these associations, which means Companies might say this neobank is progressive or trustworthy or not trustworthy. The perception of what consumers think you are. And so this is kind of the next era and the next piece. There have been indications, some companies we've worked with who they want to be seen as trustworthy. Customers don't see them that way. Or they want to be seen as progressive. Customers see them as maybe antiquated or archaic. So we yeah. find sometimes those types of insights for, for our clients. So, so really, you know, what this really seems to me is that uh, the, the technique, although there's there's machine learning involved, the technique is the old focus uh, you know, group technique, but you can apply it in a giant, in a giant way. I mean, exactly so you, right. you get, a, it, so it's much more accurate than having 10 people sitting around a table with a facilitator. Yes, it's accurate, accurate. You can track it over time. And the nice thing is it's complementary to all the data analytics tools that currently exist. So in the marketing world, a lot of leaders, they're using a myriad of different data analytics tools for channel marketing, digital marketing. You, you know, you did a campaign. How many people clicked on it? How many conversions did we get? What's our cost of acquisition? That's fantastic. But what they're not getting from that is that contextual information of what people think and feel about your brand. And then that has associations. How, what do people associate your brand with? What are those terms? All of that comes into play when you're doing a rebrand. We've had major companies come to us that are well-known in the marketplace that want to do a rebrand. That's where this information becomes super important, or you want to launch in a new market or even a new city. So when you think about, for example, all the companies these days with the past two years um, and the pandemic, everybody's shopping online. What does that do? It's the rise of online delivery services. It's also the rise of these city types of services. So think of grocery delivery, for example, that's different from one city to another. Or you can even think of hospitality or you know, restaurant services. These things might be different from one city to another. Um, so we provide some really nice insights when you're launching in different cities. So, so companies can really segment the way that they do things because, you know, of course, internationally, we might be vastly different, but even inside of, let's say the United States region to region, there are differences and companies can kind of fine tune how they deal with people. That, that's very fascinating. That's a really cool thing. You know, I, I'm really big on a lot of these kind of advanced tools. I love this kind of stuff. In fact, uh, if you've read our trend report, you'll know that we talk about uh, power tools and fish finders and, you know, and, and, and yours is kind of a fish finder. It's kind of a, one of these power tools that kind of, uh, if, if the, if the competition is using these kind of tools, you sort of have to adopt these tools also, or you end up getting left behind. And I've heard some fascinating ones just yesterday. Um, I was on a phone call with, uh, with a gentleman in Europe and the guy was saying that he was recording the call and, and then he pushes it through the system 
and it uh, it kind of assesses my integrity, veracity, uh, you know, kind of my intention, you know, my believability. And, you know, and because human beings kind of some are people are better at assessing these things than others. And he's like, you know, I just have the machine say thumbs up or thumbs down on the person I just talked to. And I, I don't know how it does it. And I don't know what my score was, but uh, but it was a very fascinating thing. It, it almost is like a lie detector, you know, that that he's like putting me through a lie detector uh, process, which I didn't volunteer to go through. But it was pretty, pretty fascinating. So there's a lot of tools like yours that companies really need to take a hard look at. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of tools. For example, I had just given um, you know a recorded meeting and there's tools that you can put into place that will actually auto-transcribe the entire meeting. So there's so many of these interesting tools in place. Well, not, only, but- not only do they auto-transcribe, but now they listen. And like for a salesperson, uh, it'll come on the screen based on what we're uh, seeing the person talk about. Uh, ask them this or ask them that. So there are just a ton of these power tools that you know rely on machine learning, AI, and they have these giant libraries. So what you're talking about is very fascinating to me because I love this whole category of power tools. And again, if companies aren't using them and other com- uh, competitors are, then they fall behind. So they exactly. sort of find themselves in a situation where they have to uh, do these kind of things. You know, one of the things that um, I was talking to an executive from a Fortune 500 company the other day, and they're surveying their dealers and they're talking to them and they're asking them all these questions and they're trying to project all this stuff. And one of the things that I thought was that I wonder if uh, if they're thinking about things that are objective and their dealers who are more entrepreneurial people, very different from corporate people, very, very different. They're to- totally different kind of people. I wonder if they're, you know, hitting the emotional mark that the entrepreneurs, because a lot of entrepreneurs, the, they ultimately kind of digest all this stuff and kind of make a gut decision. Whereas corporate people look at the data and they're trained more like scientists to study the data and make data decisions based on that. And I wonder if there's a disconnect sometimes because different people make decisions in different ways. Does your software address that? It really does. So you can, you know, split the segmentation and understand what the awareness and the associations are for those different types of segmented pools. Absolutely. What I would say on a higher level is the transition we're starting to see, especially in the marketing world, is corporations, companies are not just talking about their products and services and the features. They're talking about now the emotional connection to the consumer, and they're using that to sell and using that to increase brand awareness. So it's a really, it's a fundamental shift because five years ago, especially in the software space or even um, you know consumer goods, it's, this is the product, this is the price. This is the product, here are the features. Here's why my features are better than that company's features. Now it's all about that emotional connection. And so people, consumers or companies now are starting to talk about consumers' real life stories. You can see this pop up all over the place. For example, fashion and cosmetics. You're seeing real people, not models anymore. Real people talking about their real stories. Um, In software, you're looking at customers, how it really helped that customer, contextual, really deep and rich information versus five years ago, this is the product, here's the features, here's the the, the check grid on how many features you're getting for the price. You know... (laughs) 
I, I, I kind of see these ads where they have real people, you know, but I don't really trust the media that much to believe that they're really real people. I think that it might be a model and they just say it's a real person. Well, of course it's a real person, you know, you know, but, but they were given a script and told what to read because real people are not great actors. They're not great on camera. And, and they, they, you know, you could t- you could try a hundred times and they get nervous. They stutter, they do this. And, they do and you know, they just have TikTok. I would say right, you know, exactly. You know, but you know, so I, I always kind of, you know, I'm a little suspicious, but I guess that's why, uh, you know, things like TikTok and Instagram and a lot of these different kinds of new platforms have popped up as it gives people a, a different kind of outlet. So what, what about that? You know, does the, the, the new age social media uh, sites, you know, kind of factor into how all this stuff works for you guys? It does, but I would tell you it's more about the storytelling. So when you say, you know, is that a real person? Is that a real story? the deeper that person goes into the story and you can identify with their challenge, the the more real that you know it is. Because we all can tell, we see a fake person, it feels very Photoshopped or stock you know, image, that kind of thing with some fake quote about how great that company is. It's very different. For example, um, we had a, an article that our content team wrote about Maybelline and had they had a great example in a campaign. They were targeting very young girls in like that 13 to 17 age demographic. And they were talking about the social pressures of what these young girls were supposed to look like, how they were supposed to feel, all the mental health issues that were going on. And consumers are at, they are resonating with that because they're seeing people like them that are struggling and going through those same things. And so companies are using that now to relate and to connect with consumers instead of just saying, you know, here's the you know newest season of, of makeup um, and products that they're offering. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's, it's a complicated uh, formula and it's a complicated mix of things. So um Let's just, uh, you know, as we kind of get ready to wrap up here, is there anything that we didn't kind of touch on that you wanted to kind of let people know about how this brand tracking concept works that we didn't address? Sure. I would just say brand tracking is the last era, the last bit of marketing that's been very untouched, but it's one of the things that are most needed. It really answers the age-old question of what is my brand worth? And it also helps you to connect to your audience. It's very complementary to all the data analytics tools uh, that marketing leaders use. It's also very complementary to social listening and share of voice, but it gives you the idea of how consumers think and feel about your brand, your brand awareness, the associations. And a lot of the times that can make the difference between the efficacy of the huge amount of money that companies are spending on brand marketing and marketing in general. And a lot of times it can make the difference on the types of audiences that you're targeting and do those audience actually resonate with your brand, your strategy, your message, your campaigns. Um, So that's what we found for a lot of our customers, but it's really actually nice to see that a lot of companies nowadays have the, the, I would say the confidence now to say, it's okay that we don't come up with the strategy in the cave, in the back office somewhere, but that we're now listening to consumers and it's okay for them to say, okay, we've done it this way for so many years. Let's make sure that we actually have it right. Yeah. You know, as somebody who looks uh, toward the future in everything that I do, 
Um, I know that it's, you know, you're talking about like, this is the the latest or the last or whatever, the kind of like the kind of like the, in the evolution of things, this is it. But I kind of look at it like this is the latest and greatest. And, uh, you know, a couple of years from now, there's going to be this new thing. And, you know, what we're talking about now, of course, which is really cool. It's very smooth and and it's the best that we can do right now in, in our time frame. But I wonder where we're going to be in a couple of years and uh, what tools are going to exist and kind of a theoretical discussion, but, but always interesting to do. And uh, listen, I, I want to tell you, thank you for sharing what you just did. You know, the goal of the show, the promise of the show is to deliver the inside track, which is the best, smartest or fastest way to get something done. And, and you have delivered on that promise, which is, you know, how to think about brands in a different way and how to understand consumers in a different way. And uh, the people who come on our show and do that, uh, we call those people advantage players. And, and you certainly are an advantage player. So uh, thank you for sharing and bringing all this insight and intel to us. Uh, we'll post your uh, contact information in the show notes. And uh, it just was a pleasure to get to know you. And, and, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Joel. Great, great to be here. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Audavita Studios. Profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audavita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.